Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. It was on an Italian beach in the summer of 2002, under the dangerous blaze of the afternoon sun, that for a short time, our daughter got lost. A month away from her fourth birthday, I still have a technicolour image of that version of her. The small swimsuit with the low-waisted frill and a red flower print. Her pale skin slathered in sunscreen. A little hat shading her face. Her strong, small, stocky legs. Always running. Via Reggio is a seaside town on the Ligurian coast. Art Deco shopfronts. Glimmering ocean. Great marble mountains to the north. Rows and rows of waterside umbrellas in coloured stripes vividly flapping in the gentle wind. In high summer, the beach has a glorious soundtrack. Tanned t-shirted salesmen with creaking baskets slung over their shoulders sell hot pastries filled with pistachio cream or molten chocolate. Deft women in pale tunics and wide-brimmed hats walk among the sunbeds and deck chairs, offering the soothing magic of massage. There's something of the town crier about these vendors, their announcements, bombalone, massaggio, must be loud and showy to compete with the other noises in the air. Children laughing, parents calling, teenagers showing off, music rising from speakers, the roll and fizz of the sea. In the instant when we could not find our daughter, all those sounds seemed to grow muffled. Her father and I shouted for her, hurrying to the places we thought she might be. As there continued to be no sign of her, quickly we became more frantic. In the anguish, most of our fragile Italian vocabulary was lost to us as we tried to ask for help. Sensing the situation, kind families and cafe staff gathered, willing to support, but even the smallest pieces of information felt impossible to articulate. I did not have the words for flowery swimsuit or pale skin or curly hair, All I could muster again and again was piccola ragazza, fiori rossi. How unhelpful it must have been for the locals to hear me clumsily repeating small girl, red flowers at them, like a contestant in a hellish game of charades whose confidence has failed her. I remember a gleaming young lifeguard of about 20 sternly addressing me. Calma, signora, calma. In hindsight, I forgive him, but at the time, if I'd had the Italian that was so badly failing me, I'd have told him, I've lost my child. There is no calma. In reality, it can't have been more than 15 minutes or so, proof that life can play havoc with any ordered sense of logic or time. All at once, those minutes seemed to warp and stretch and stand still. By the time our distress was at its chaotic peak and the crowd had thickened, A gap appeared, and in it a woman, or rather, a Botticelli angel, with our daughter in her arms. Our girl was hiccuping with sobs, but otherwise fine. She reached for me, and we clung to each other, while my normally less demonstrative husband fell to his knees in front of our startled saviour and embraced the woman around her legs in an operatic gesture of relief and gratitude. There was laughter all around us and in us, the privilege of comfort after danger. 
Our girl is a grown-up now, no longer small, still an adventurer. We don't often talk about it, and when we do, it's with the memory of the mirth that concluded it. But we carry the darker ghost of that long-ago afternoon with us still, when for a brief time, like a jagged rip appearing in the sky, an unthinkable possibility opened in front of us and almost as quickly zipped itself up again, returning us to the cheery noises of the beach, the sunshine, the music, the sweet pastries. Kilkenny's Arts Festival celebrates its 50th anniversary this year. Born and bred in Kilkenny, I have some wonderful memories of the festival. Seamus Heaney and Liam Ogo Flynn performing together in St Canice's Cathedral. A packed audience of 800 plus, stock still and silent, hanging on Heaney's every word and O'Flynn's notes. William Trevor's gentle and poignant reading in the Watergate Theatre, and the American poet Robert Pinsky reading from his translation of Dante's Inferno in the most unique and appropriate location for that reading, the underworld of the Dunmore Cave, just outside Kilkenny. But of those fifty years, my most abiding memory a tender memory, a touching memory, and one that will linger with me for a long time to come, is that of having my feet washed and kissed in an upstairs room, an oasis of peace and calm in the hole in the wall just off Kilkenny's High Street. Built in 1582, this backstreet tavern was, during the 1780s and early 1800s, the most fashionable resort in the city and is now perhaps Kilkenny's most unique bar and entertainment venue. This was an encounter with a brilliant performance artist only a couple of years before his untimely death. It's Arts Festival 2010 and I am seated in an upright chair. My trousers are rolled to my shins, my feet are bare and kneeling before me with a bowl of lukewarm water and some fluffy white towels is Adrian Howells. Adrian is washing my feet. He is wearing a white linen shirt and white pants and his eyes radiate tranquillity, warmth and calm. Adrian talks quietly and softly while performing the ablutions. He asks some simple questions, but always asks for permission to ask. Adrian is the perfect gentleman, effortlessly putting me at my ease. The first question Adrian asks is, how is my relationship with my feet? 
I am tempted to say we're very attached, but this is not the time or place for wise cracks or cleveralities. My relationship with my feet, I tell Adrian, was abusive. Having played a lot of soccer in my youth, I most certainly abused them by wearing tight-fitting, battered football boots that were well past their sell-by date. However, that relationship, I tell him, has improved over the years. It had to, or I'd be crippled by now. Having bathed and dried my feet, Adrian explained how he came to washing people's feet. While in Tel Aviv on an artistic project, he observed the tension that existed between the Israeli and Arab communities. Having with him several books on both cultures, Adrian found inspiration in the Bible, in particular the Gospel of St. John and the episode where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. And so Adrian decided to wash the feet of Jew and Arab alike as a gesture of humility and love. Washing strangers' feet, Adrian explains, humbles him, which in turn energises and empowers him. Adrian now proceeds to massage my feet with oil of frankincense and almond and wonders if I could wash the feet of a stranger. I tell him I could, but wouldn't know how I'd find that stranger. Do I approach someone in the street and ask, can I wash your feet? Or do I ask someone in the pub, which might be considered an unusual, if not untoward, chat-up line? We never quite finished that conversation, because Adrian now asks if it would be okay to kiss my feet. I have no objection whatsoever. Adrian duly kisses my right foot, whispering softly, Shalom. He then kisses my left foot and equally softly whispers something in a language unknown to me. Shalom, Adrian explains, is Hebrew for go in peace, which he then intoned in Arabic while kissing my left foot. As I finish my session with Adrian, I ask him about an article that I read stating that he is now bathing people naked. Is there any truth in this, I ask? There is. I am bathing people naked, and if people want to wear a swimsuit, that's okay, he tells me, but most don't. I take my leave of Adrian with a warm and heartfelt handshake, feeling calm, peaceful and refreshed. As for being bathed naked, think I'll give that a miss. My neighbour Gordon popped into the bar at lunchtime recently and ordered his current favourite tipple, a Bloody Mary. 
choice of beverage which, considering his age and consistent good humour, can be heartily recommended. Pleasantries exchanged, conversation turned to other cocktails and their constituent parts, before Gordon inquired as to the difference between a book's fizz and a mimosa. None that I knew of, I replied, other than my memory of book's fizz was sparkling wine mixed with concentrated bottled orange juice and drunk exclusively at Christmas. The mimosa, sounding posher, must have used Tropicana at the very least. He told me his preference was for freshly pressed apple juice with his fizz, a tasty sounding alternative which neither of us could dream up a name for. What I have always been a fan of though is the Bellini, pulped white peaches and Prosecco mixed in a one to two part ratio, served in a champagne flute and preferably in Venice. The Bellini was conceived in Harry's bar, discreetly tucked away around a corner from Piazza San Marco and for more than 80 years, a mecca for every luminary who passed through the sinking city. Ernest Hemingway found time in his busy international drinking schedule to prop up the bar there, as did Truman Capote and Catherine Hepburn. In January 1994, it was my turn to leave an indelible impression on the venerable establishment. At the time, I was fresh out of UCD, I'm busy putting my arts degree to good use working in an Irish pub in Florence. It was one of several pubs located around Italy belonging to an old family friend, Gino, and a perk of the job was covering holidays where and when needed, which is how I found myself one crisp Florentine winter morning setting off with the bus for a week-long stint in the Fiddler's Elbow, Venice. Gino, who had a penchant for doomed housing projects, had recently acquired an enormous crumbling palazzo on the island, its vast ballrooms and chandelier-lined corridors indicating a glorious past. But now the building was so cold and damp that when at home, we confined ourselves to the kitchen around a three-bar gas heater. The fiddler's elbow was small and relaxed. Its daytime clientele composed mostly of groups of elderly men sent on a seemingly endless round of errands by their wives. They drank tiny glasses of wine and would leave and reappear at half-hour intervals, a single tomato or a couple of sausages, indicating the progress of their grocery shopping, which could take up to five hours to complete. Free of the tourist hordes of summer, it was quiet enough for Gino to close the bar on Mondays, which is when he suggested we take a trip to Harry's bar for a few bellinis a proposition that sounded somewhat more desirable than another evening sat round the super sir back in the palazzo kitchen. The outside of Harry's was remarkably unimposing, the interior small and packed, yet within moments an immaculately uniformed waiter appeared with two high stools and we found ourselves seated at the end of the compact bar. Disgracefully underdressed for the occasion, I ordered the Bellinis, informing the barman with studied nonchalance that the tab was mine. Having a palate that had been untroubled by nothing more adventurous than Lager or Lambrusco, I found the Bellini a revelation, silky smooth with just a hint of fizz. I noticed the couple beside us being presented with a tiny plate of dainty crustless sandwiches and canapes. Imagining these to be the Venetian equivalent of the Friday night complimentary sausages back home in my father's pub in Dublin, I casually gestured to the barman to bring us something similar. They soon arrived and were just as quickly eaten. 
Feeling emboldened by my status as Harry's latest barhound and deciding my budget would stretch to another round, I told my buddy behind the bar to line up another pair of cocktails and while he was at it, another few sambos wouldn't go amiss either. Savouring the last drop of my Bellini, I called for the check while Gino excused himself and disappeared to the gents. Upon inspection, I realised some mistake had been made barman having surely confused my cocktails with the dinner bill of a moderately sized family. No mistake, he politely informed me. Four bellinis and two plates of chiquetti. The bar snacks coming in at roughly six times the cost of the drinks. Gino returned from the toilet to find me staring slack-jawed at the receipt. With a shake of his head, he calmly removed it from my fingers and passed his credit card across the bar in that same instant realising that I had become his latest doomed project. Myself and Gina's friendship has, thankfully, outlasted both the pub and the palazzo, and I've been thinking, next time we see each other, he might be the very man to come up with a name for Gordon's apple fizz concoction. Television was an exciting escape for us teenagers in the 1970s. After doing a bit of homework, we'd slip out to the sitting room, lured by the voices of the American actors who peopled the sitcoms and the detective series of Hollywood at that time. Once settled in, we'd lose ourselves in Little House on the Prairie, The Waltons or Hawaii Five-O. Long before we had insulated walls and triple glazing, the fire was where we'd huddle close to watch, relishing the time that was left of the night, knowing bedtime was almost upon us, that we'd soon have to leave the heat and face the cold upstairs. My father loved the investigative programme Seven Days and its successor Today Tonight. He was, I realise now, the ultimate news addict. It was the politics that drew him in. He'd tune in religiously to every bulletin and every current affairs snippet. He'd listen devoutly to newscasters such as Charles Mitchell and Morris O'Doherty. Also, he revelled in the Irish language programmes such as Féach, which was usually throughout the 1960s and 70s, presented by Aaron Islander, Brendan O'Hare. The language was a balm to my father. He'd listen avidly to Brendan's Connemara Irish and enjoy his honesty and straightforward style. Us girls would sit quietly and watch too, knowing our father wanted us to love Irish and that he wanted us to know about what was happening in the world outside. My father especially loved watching the politicians of the day being grilled in the RTE studios. I can see him now listening intently, occasionally puffing on his pipe. 
this fellow will be good, he's a labour man, he'd comment. That would remind us of his allegiance to the principles of socialism and of the fact that he had once been an active member of the party. When we lived in the city, he had even stood for election on the labour ticket. All through our teenage years, we'd sit quietly listening and if we failed to pay attention or grasp the significance of what was transpiring on the telly, my father might be moved to call for Cunus! he'd say. The nine o'clock news was sacrosanct, especially when we lived in single-channel land. A hush would fall on us when the signature tune came on. Winter nights at home were bookmarked by the nine o'clock news. He watched the programmes we loved too, but some failed to wind him in. On occasion, distracted maybe by worries about the boiler or the rising cost of petrol, he'd find himself halfway through an episode of Kojak, baffled by a rapidly evolving plot. With Telly Savalas, the fast-talking lead detective, sucking on a lollipop on the screen, my father would scratch his head, exasperated by the convoluted storyline. Can one of you tell me what's going on, he'd ask and with the thinly-veiled patience of a teacher describing the way of the world to a child, we'd bring him up to speed and explain the story to him. Later in the 1980s, he enjoyed the Scottish detective Taggart, the Scots' taciturn nature, his gnarled face and his wise quips kept my father entertained. And he loved watching those salty farmers in One Man and His Dog, where they went through trials with their sheepdogs up in the mountains of Wales or Scotland. My father had a great sense of humour, but during those years in the 70s, when it was difficult to make a living in rural Ireland, I remember him as serious and preoccupied. Last thing at night, when the telly was off, He'd kneel at the side of his bed and say his prayers. All through the years, he was unwavering. He kept faith with the precepts of his forebears. Thinking back now, I realise how strong he was. I understand more fully his passions, his curiosity, his motivations. I love many of the things he loved, and every day I recognise him more and more in myself. I hear myself using some of his catchphrases like that's a throwback to my youth or up our house. But my father had steadfastness. Today I search for that steadfastness in myself, that thread of meaning which gave him certainty in the world. The bus climbs for 40 minutes up a series of hairpin bends which reveal the calm blue of the Majorcan coast. It's midday, 
hot. Back at the port in Soyer, my husband is sleeping his way through a bout of Covid. So this is a solo mission to see the house built by writer Robert Graves for himself and Laura Riding in the mountainy village of Dea. The bus doesn't stop outside the Graves' house, but trundles on to the centre of the village. I disembark, push my way through clusters of hikers about to hop on, pull down the brim of my sun hat and begin to trudge back to La Casa de Robert Graves. Crickets and cicadas rub wings and legs ecstatically, and to the left the landscape falls away, opening to views of small vineyards, gardens and finally the mythic sea. I reach the house, walk up the pebbled path to be greeted by a pleasant, unfussy woman who shows me to an annex where I can watch a film about Graves's life. There are no other visitors that day, and as the film runs, I listen to his son's voice recounting his father's intrepid life, from First World War and injury at the Somme, to his tempestuous marriage to a woman described with slight distaste as a feminist, and on to his relationship with the poet Laura Riding. Graves took his position as a professional artist seriously. Not only did he want to produce literary art, but the need to earn from his output was pressing. The publication of I, Claudius in 1934 brought the kind of financial security he needed to maintain a home in Dea. But no sooner had life begun there than the Spanish Civil War interrupted and he and Riding moved to the USA for ten years. All in all, quite a hiatus, which did in the end sour their relationship. But Graves, with dark, handsome features and an interesting, well-stocked mind, drew women like moths to flame. He returned to Mallorca and went on to marry Beryl Hodge. Graves was the 20th century master gatherer of myth, legend and folklore, producing in 1948 the encyclopedic tome known as The White Goddess, his multifaceted creative interpretation of myth and poetry. For many years I kept a copy on my desk. It was a touchstone for me, a reliable signpost into worlds and visions that I felt I needed by my side. The casa includes three studies, one for himself, one for Laura Riding and one for any visiting writer. It was automatically expected that writing would occur. I wandered the rooms and felt a sense of exquisite delight. Here was the perfect writer's house, characterised by suitable desks and chairs, high white ceilings, generous shelving for books, primitive art objects in wood and ceramic, and upstairs, comfortable-looking beds. In another room, the printing press he and Riding had used remained set up. The functional wooden kitchen contains an early Kenwood food mixer and a cream-coloured range, because winters in Dea would be challenging, not so warm and sometimes stormy. It's easy to imagine food being prepared in that kitchen, and I fancy I can catch the odour of chopped herbs, garlic and the residual reek of olive oil absorbed into wooden boards. 
I imagine too the opened bottles of red wine nearby. But what appeals most as I wander around are the letters to graves displayed in one of the rooms, the network of communications between writers clearly free-flowing, casual, full of mutual delight. One from young Edna O'Brien laments the fact that she and Graves have missed one another, but adds, I am going to New York in the morning for a couple of weeks, a semi-working journey. It is a frazzled time, so we have to be strong and persistent. Love, Edna. John Betjeman's fluid hand declares, That was a splendid talk you gave on Macefield. Affectionate, humorous, fair, personal and loyal. I had to write and thank you for it, of course. Graves was in touch with everyone. Christopher Isherwood, Alan Silito, and Brendan Behan, who comments with regard to Graves' translation of the Roman historian Suetonius. The plain fact of the matter is that yours is the work of ten times as much health and hilarity as is given to most writers. So may I offer ten thanks to you for this wonderful gift of a book. Nor lagi dia hu anish riev nogabra. Standing in Graves' study, I hesitate before departing. My eye caught by a striped cotton shirt draped along the back of a wooden chair, as if waiting for him to fill it. I want to touch this, to finger the fabric, but don't. A pair of spectacles are folded on a work in progress that he will surely return to. The house is cool, quiet. The writer has just slipped out for a while. I was standing down by the red gate, waiting for the funeral of a neighbour to pass by. Here, as in many places in the countryside, this is a customary farewell and homage to one who has left us and to the families, a custom most worthy to be remembered and continued. And as I was thinking such thoughts, I saw a wren fly swiftly out from the white thorn bush near me. A bush, I could see, that needed trimming. But isn't the white thorn, the may bush, the lone bush, a sacred and a mythic thing, not to be trifled with? This bush seemed as if it never had a beginning. It has stood on this spot as if it has always, by right, stood exactly there, surviving, the ancient forests that surrounded it long gone. It is Sphinx, still haughty, still brooding on ancient secrecies under the curious watch of the moon and the drifting over of the wistful stars. Like old Ireland with its hearths, its haws and its slow processional white returns of the May, 
It looms, thorny, intertwining limbs shielding the wren. It rears up big as a haycock, cocky as a temple dome. Could it be that now in this cyborg age, the little people, affrighted, may have ceased their unholy jigs and reels around it? No, I dare not cut it down. It will stand with its deities, its poets, Ferguson and Yeats, a font of faithfulness and a portal to wonder. Perhaps, I thought, I might succeed in writing a poem about the white thorn. Beyond the red gate where I was waiting, the valley lay quiet in the profound green of its pre-summer faithfulness. Scarcely a breath on the air, light and expectancy. There is much trouble in the world, but no lessening of hope. The spring acclamations of birdsong have been growing less shrill. Just now I had let the red gate swing open to the demands of noon. In deep shadows of the wood opposite, a smallest creature stirred, hesitated. At the wood's edge, something shifted amongst the grasses, fell still. Upstairs, the notebooks were lying open, the laptop idled. After the passing of our old friend, I would pause a while, inhale deeply, then turn back towards the house, waiting for the stirring of the spirit towards verse. The prophet Amos said, somewhere in those years of war, pillage and exodus of the Old Testament, that when God calls, a prophet has no choice but to answer to tell how the nations must hold this perishable earth passionately within their hearts. By the red gate and the lush and rollicking loveliness of the Leitrim countryside, I was sadly aware of the Godzilla-like tyrant of Russia destroying and pillaging the neighbouring country of Ukraine. The white-thorn tree in its beauty, humanity in its violent predations, where is the poetry to be found? And because I knew and know, in this our kingdom of disharmony, how we will be old but for a time, I pray that the poems, singing themselves in the soul's sanctum, may offer a dulcet, difficult music, perhaps relevant, like prophecy. Moses, that fiery prophet, discovered on the green Ardon of Mount Horeb, that the tree of life burns on and the world turns. Beloved of old-time Yahweh, he died with the Almighty's kisses on his lips. Our neighbour, who lived his long, unspectacular life in a cottage inhabited for generations, at the tail end of a softly shadowed boreen, a gentleman who loved to pause by the entangled ditches on the lane sides, has died, kissed discreetly on the lips by the gentle Christ, and now was being hearsed along the roads and cattle lanes he had walked, head high with knowledge and the ancient certainties. These country fields and hedgerows, these rutted, waywardly twisting tracks, these trodden paths, Accept each death as they welcome rain, a flight of swans, 
the failure of a crop. Now the old man is being brought along our axis Monday, while the gleaming hearse will soon pass softly by. At crossroads, farm gates and kitchen doors, and here by the white thorn and the red gate, we stand in silence, waiting for the cortege, offering our homage to something we are not quite sure of. But in our deepest hearts there is prayer, spoken and unspoken, that our dreams of peace and our poems in praise of the wonders of creation are not in vain, that, in the words of St. Julian, the great anchoress of Norwich, all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. On this morning's programme we heard Small Girl Red Flowers by Sarah Moore Fitzgerald, Soul Searching by Jerry Moran, Fizzy Drinks by Alan Finnegan, Telly in the 70s by Catherine Foley, The Robert Graves House by Mary O'Donnell, and The Lone Bush by the Red Gate by John F. Dean. The music was Stessa Spiaggio Stessa Mare, performed by Mina, It's a Miracle by Culture Club, The Allegro from Concerto No. 3 in G Major, from Vivaldi's Lestro Armonico, The Kojak Theme by Billy Goldenberg, and By the Mere from Leaves from a Child's Sketchbook by John Ireland, performed on the piano by Eric Parkin. This morning's programme was produced by Lorcan Clancy. The broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the series producer of Sunday Miscellany is Sarah Binchy. And a book you may be interested in, Song of the Goldfinch, a memoir by John F. Dean, has just been published by Veritas. For more from Sunday Miscellany and other arts and culture programmes, see rte.ie forward slash culture. And to listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE Radio app or the programme website, rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.